Go ahead and grab your Bibles if you got one. If you have a device, you can go to the ESV version and we're gonna be in James chapter one. James one, we're gonna be touching down on verses 16 through 18 this morning. James 1, 16. Go to Hebrews, it's right after the book of Hebrews. If you don't know where Hebrews is, I don't really think I can help you. I don't know where it is either, I can't find it. Some people have called the book of James uh, the Proverbs of the New Testament. And when you read it, and if you've been following us with it up to this point, you can kind of see why. Um, sometimes it feels as you read through James that uh, this is a dude who just kind of copy and pasted all of his Facebook posts from the last year into like one letter. Um, but as we dive in a little deeper and as we kind of go week to week, um, we see that they're really incredibly tied together if we keep in mind that James wants to impart words of wisdom to a bunch of Jewish Christians, this is who he's writing to, that are facing rejection from their own people. And if we keep that in context, it helps us understand sort of what appears to be kind of this jagged, you know, frame of thinking and writing that, that James kind of lays out to us. But he wants them, and by virtue of that, us, to remember that God is allowing the trials that they're facing so that joy and steadfastness of their faith might increase. So what James does all the way through the book, and we're going to see this as, as we go through this over about the next 20 weeks, that he provides us with these nuggets of wisdom. And the reason why he was doing this for these Jewish Christians is because they drift. Did you know that? Do you know that as Christians, we, we, just, tend to, we just tend to drift, right? We just don't really stay in a straight line. We, we forget who God is. Right? Because we're very much about being self-focused on our own wants and our own needs. It's kind of like when I try, uh, which I don't too often anymore, but when I try to saw something, you know, with a handsaw, my wife's already laughing. I'm just going to stop right there and move on to the next part of the illustration. But it's like when I try to saw something, it look, man, it, I'm telling you, for the first couple of inches, I'm on it. I'm going I'm to hand in my resignation letter, become a carpenter, Right? Um, it, it looks good, but um, man, after that, I, I just tend to drift. I don't have a very steady hand. Let me give you a better example. Like if I would have been the one to make those new visitor and coffee cards we have in our entrance, everything on top of them would be on the ground right now, right? Your kids would be like, hey, mom, pastor made some new teeter-totters. That's how it would be out in the front right now. Man, we easily drift in our thoughts about who God is. A guy named A.W. Tozer, this uh, pastor and theologian from, a, from a, a couple of decades ago, he, this is what he said about God. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what does James want us to know about our Father in heaven as we face trials on earth? James begins verse 16. If you're looking down, he says, um, do not be deceived, my beloved brother. So he begins verse 16 by issuing a warning against self-deception. James is saying this in a nutshell. He's saying trials can tempt our minds to imagine things about God that ain't true. I don't know how many of you had this experience, but 
how many times have you remembered something wrongly? Um, and, and again, a good example might be if you've ever been able to visit your childhood home as an adult, have you ever had an opportunity to do that? And you, you always, you come back and you just say, man, I remember it being so much bigger. You know, the house hasn't shrunk, right? I mean, that's impossible. The reason the house seems smaller is because your world has expanded, because your perceptions have grown, because you're a bigger person, right? You just resized it in your head. And what's interesting is that we do that with God sometimes when we experience trials. We remember him being bigger than he seems in that particular moment. But it's like James is saying to us today, don't let trials deceive you into rethinking God's goodness. Don't let a pandemic deceive you into thinking that God is tempting you with things or withholding some good from you that you deserve. James would say, use wisdom in these moments so that you don't drift from the truth. So in, in respect to the verses we're gonna be looking at this morning, wisdom then is remembering who God is when you don't have a clue where life is going. This is what it says when we pick up in verse 17. James says, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And then he says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So the first thing James is saying that we don't want to forget this morning about God in our trials is his good gifts. Verse 17 there, it says, every good and perfect gift is from above. Now, last week we learned that temptations never come from God, but from disordered desires within us. Now here we have by contrast, what does come from God is every good and perfect gift. Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, this is what he said. He said, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, he says, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So there is a goodness that just comes overflowing out of the heart of our good God. And a good gift, by the way, always tells you something about the person that's giving it. Generosity just doesn't come from a stingy person, right? Kindness doesn't typically come from a mean guy. So if God cannot tempt you and tempt me with evil, it means that what comes overflowing from his heart of goodness is going to be good gifts. Now, you might be tempted to think otherwise, especially when you're experiencing trials and temptations. That's what James is kind of driving at here with these Jewish Christians. James is saying, don't let your heart be fooled. Because God is all good, it means the gifts he gives will be good and they will be perfect. And so our response might be as we hear that, because if you're like me, like things come, things start surfacing in my mind, in my heart to argue with that, right? So you might say, well, this testing that I'm going through or these trials that I'm going through doesn't feel good. And it certainly doesn't feel perfect. And yet what we're finding and what we've been finding through the book of James up to this point is that it's the very thing that is making you into somebody. 
And that somebody it's making into you is the more God-like, good, and perfect you that reflects the perfection of his son, Jesus, right? Now, the story of Joseph, if you remember back in Genesis, man, this really helps us. We're understanding God's good and perfect gifts to us as we're going through trials, and it seems like anything but good and perfect anything is coming our way. The story of Joseph helps us. It was not a good thing. You remember the story where his brothers sold him into slavery and he, endure, he, he endures years and years of um, being under the hand of just uh, Egyptian uh, just rulers and bosses and yet God is caring for him in this. God is looking out for him. He's watching over him. He's blessing him with a particular kind of favor. He ends up being second in command over the entire nation of Egypt. So it all culminates in the end when he reunites with his brothers. He forgives them. He kind of brings them into the land. He takes care of them. Now, the point is that it was not a good thing for his older brothers to sell him into slavery. Not a good thing, brothers, right? But God, being fully good, used that trial in Joseph's life to bring about enormous good. He brought about enormous good through his brother's evil intentions. Joseph told his brothers, maybe you've heard this, it's, it's kind of a famous biblical uh, uh, verse. He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So one thing this implies is that First off, we should never call something that is evil good just, so, just because some good came out of it, right? The scripture doesn't tell us to do that. Instead, we can learn to trust that God can even use the evil that's done against us for good while still calling evil evil, by the way. But waiting, hoping, trusting, and believing, man, that, that's hard. Sometimes the scarring that happens with evil that's been done against us makes it hard for us to see that God is good and that his gifts are perfect. And this is where Jesus comes in for us, right? The best gift God ever gave us came in the form of a man that was bruised and beaten to the point that he didn't resemble a man. And you know, I think what's hard about that for us is that when something is all scratched up, sometimes we fail to see the good that God is working and bringing inside of it to be something that will ultimately be a reflection of his character and will be the very thing that brings us renewed trust and hope in him. Listen, I man, we often just reflect on how God has just used some painful things, probably not any more painful than things you guys have been through, but how God has used some painful things that have scarred us, have scratched us up, but they've also been things that has made us a people who can persevere. And then if you, tra if you trace our story back years and years, it was so that we could help plant a church full of people who are all scratched up, who can learn to persevere alongside of us. Some hard things that we have endured have ended up being God's good gifts. Because just for example, where there was impatience, well, there's now just a little more patience. Where there was harshness, 
there is now a little more empathy that was lacking before, where there was self-sufficiency. Man, we got life. We got this. We can do anything. We can conquer anything. There's now dependence. These are good and perfect gifts from above that have the heart and character of Jesus just washed all over them, right? James wants us to remember the Father's good gifts. Second thing he wants us to remember is his unchanging character. Look what it says in the second half of 17, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So we bought these two lamps that hang over our bed and one night, I reached up to turn it off and and broke it, right? So now it just dangles over my bed, looking like it's going to fall on my head, literally like any minute. The light flickers on and off after I turn it on. No, I have not replaced it. It's only been a year, you know? James describes God here, speaking of light, as the father of lights. But this light is not like a light bulb. It's not like my lamp. It's not like something that eventually flickers and burns out. When we talk about God, we're talking about someone who is steady and unchanging and undimmed. He's a never flickering light that illuminates not only the entire universe, but the darknesses of our own life. John 1, 1 John 1, 5 says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So the way James describes the father here is the father of lights, it's not as this inconsistent flickering light. His character doesn't change based on the stuff that changes our character, like instability and physicality and emotions, which by the way would describe me. It would describe my mood. It would describe Big R when he's having a bad day here. God doesn't have a bad day. You ever thought about that? God doesn't have a bad day. I had like three of them this week. He doesn't have a bad day on us. He's unchangeable. He's immutable. Numbers 23, 19 reminds us of this. It says, God is not human that he should lie not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? It's almost like Moses is telling us like, man, do you see the ridiculousness of ascribing our character traits to God? It doesn't add up. It doesn't make any sense. We can rely on God's goodness because he's the unchanging father of lights and his light in our life is almost like the difference between having a flashlight, little pocket flashlight of our own versus a stadium full of lights that someone else turns the power on to whenever you ask. That's the difference between we're talking about God who is an unchanging father of lights and us who change on a dime based on our mood, based on the fact that It's 11.30 and we should have already had lunch. He is not like us. But how many times do you feel like you're just in the dark 
You just can't see your way through a dilemma. There's pain in your life. You can't see it. There's been a tragedy. You've been mistreated. You've been abused for years. And you can't see your way through it. James wanted his persecuted friends to remember that they had a father who is the father of illumination. He will bring himself, his heart, his care to light as much as he will bring to justice those things that have obscured it. Man, we can depend on that. We can depend on that. He gives us wisdom. He gives us wisdom to trust that his presence has not vanished in the darkest corners of our life. And by the way, it's not a one-time thing with God. You know, here's the thing. We always have to wonder about that with people. Even the most reliable person will likely fail you at some point. They might change their mind. They, they might break a promise. They will likely disappoint you. They will betray their character to you. You thought they were this person and they turned out to be that person. I mean, there's nobody in here that can't tell a story of that happening in their life. But with God, there is no, it says, variation or shadow due to change. The sun doesn't rise or set with God. It's fixed. It's always shining. It's like the difference between a desk lamp and the sun, right? Eventually, the light in that desk lamp hanging over my bed is going to go out forever. And I'm still not going to change it. But the sun, the sun never goes out. Today, the clouds are obscuring the sun, right? It doesn't go out. The rain, when it comes, might dampen it, but it never goes out. The snow might darken it, but it never goes out. There's never a moment, and I'm not even a science guy, when the sun is not there. And yet it's those sun concealing elements that make us that much more eager to see the light come out again. We just want to see the sun. And in the same way, those valleys of the shadow of death that we walk through, they give us a a greater hunger and awareness of God's unchanging presence. We change. Our hearts bring shade and shadow on ourselves and onto others. But it's not so, James is telling us, with the Father of lights. His character is unchangeable. His presence is impossible to escape even. We can try to escape him like Jonah tried to, right? But he never lets us go. He hounds us. He's been called the hound of heaven. So we want to remember his good gifts. We want to remember his unchanging character. Finally, we want to remember his divine purpose for us. Read 18 with me. Of his own will, it says, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It says he brought us forth. He brought you forth by the power of his word to begin the process of new life in you. God has a plan 
God has a plan and a purpose. We make plans, but we have no clue what's going to happen. All of you have plans on the books right now. You don't have a clue what's going to happen with those plans. Ronnie, this is the most encouraging message I've ever heard. It is, though. But you don't have any clue. Monday morning, man, I'm just typing stuff into my calendar. I don't know. I just do it to stay organized. I don't know if any of it's going to happen. Our plans always have an asterisk next to them, don't they? Wouldn't you love to just once have a plan you could bank on? That's really what we long for at the end of the day. We long for a story with a happy ending that can never become untrue. And this is the story that God has written for those he has brought forth by Jesus, who is his word of truth, who is his main character, and who the whole plot hinges on. So it's not that God's not going to fail you. It's that God would never fail Jesus of who all of his plans and promises hinge on. And when you're grabbed, hold on to him, you're secure. Because that's the plot. Jesus is the plot. And that plot includes you being picked and harvested as the first fruits of God's creation. Like that first crop that comes from a farmer's field. What is that? Well, for those of you who are farmers, you would know that that guarantees that a good harvest is going to follow. So it's the same thing for us. This new life in Christ is the first part of God's plan to renew all things. We're new creatures. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. So don't worry about your plans because this plan is the one that is unfailingly going to come to pass. He says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are new creatures and he uses us to bring new creatures that he calls from his word by his will to be his next batch of first fruits. So we wait in hope. Romans 8, 22, Paul says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, he says, who have the first fruits of the spirit. We groan, Paul says, inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we wait in hope, but right now in these trials, man, there is just an inward groaning. There is a relief that we are just pressing into, that we are longing for, that we are hoping for. And Paul says this, he says, for in this hope we were saved. He says, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? For if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So this plan, this purpose that God has, we are able to wait for it in hope because it's secured by who it's hinged on, which is Christ. And not only that, but we have this divine power that helps us wait. How do you just wait, just muster something up? 
so that you're able to wait? So that you're able to just kick it until the end? Well, I don't have anything like that. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, listen to this, you become partakers of the divine nature. You become like Jesus, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. James is getting us reacquainted with our heavenly father so that we become reacquainted with his son. That's the illumination that we receive from this father of lights. That's the darkness destroying grace that comes to you layer upon layer as you move through the fog of life and life is fog. Life is fogginess. Every good and perfect gift finds its beginning and end in Jesus Christ. He is the good and perfect gift that God has given to us to fulfill his divine purpose for the universe. It's that majestic. It's that beautiful. It's that overwhelming in its goodness and glory. So overwhelming that Paul was even able to say that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory behind, beyond all comparison. That's what we're talking about. Wisdom is remembering who God is when you don't have a clue where life is going. So what should remembering who God is lead us to do when we find ourselves in trials? In other words, what does having this unchanging, good and perfect gift-giving Father help us keep in practice? What are the things? The first one is this. It helps us keep thankfulness in practice. You know that cynicism has no place in the Christian life? It has no place in the Christian life. Cynicism. Oh, man, it's just, it's all going down. It's all going to heck. In a handbasket. It has no place in the Christian life. It's really a denial of God's good gifts. When we say there's nothing good. There's nothing good here for me. Thankfulness is the practice that keeps the goodness of God alive and warm in our hearts. Man, how hard is it to do that when you're in a trial? How hard is it to step back and go, Lord, I want to be thankful for this and this and this and this person. I want to be thankful for you. What all my thankfulness and all of these things and these situations and these circumstances, I want it to funnel back to just such a gratefulness and a thankfulness to you. How hard is it? to do that. If it was hard for them back then, it's hard for us now. But having a perfect gift-giving father helps us keep thankfulness in practice. Secondly, it helps us keep hospitality in practice. 
Why is that? Because these good and perfect gifts, they demand to be shared, right? Maybe, maybe we would be less focused and I would say less over-focused on all the things that drive us crazy about COVID, all the disunity in the air that exists because of our elections and all the differing opinions we have about our masks if we looked instead for ways to serve our friends and our neighbors and find out where it is that all of this season has brought them. Have you ever sat down with somebody and said, hey, I've been thinking about you, I've been praying for you. Can you tell me how you're doing in this season? Because I can tell you how I'm doing in this season. And it's been a struggle, it's been a slog. That kind of brings things back into perspective for us, right? When we keep generosity and hospitality and practice in our church. Now we have to do that in some unique ways. I'm thinking about everybody watching on the live stream right now. We can be creative with that. We always can be creative with that. But are we putting that into practice? And the third thing that it helps us do, this unchanging gift-giving father, it helps us keep his will in practice. It helps us keep God's will in practice. Some of you guys are like, that's it? That's it, that's what you came up with this week. Pastor, do we actually pay you to tell us these things we already know? You do. If God brought us forth by the will of his word, we need to bring his word to bear on our hearts and minds constantly so that we're living out his will, which is what gives us thankfulness and hospitality and generosity. Why? Because Christians drift. Because you drift and I drift and we all drift together. We drift. We are prone to wander. We are easily deceived. Like James points out in verse 16. I had a conversation with a man recently who told me he was in the process of deconstructing his faith. He said, I have too many problems with American evangelicalism. I said, amen, brother, you should. So should you, right? He's not wrong in that. Here's what's wrong about that. By deconstructing a religion gone haywire, when we, let me say it to you more slowly, when we deconstruct a religion gone haywire, it should lead us back to a God who never does. A father of lights who never changes, but always changes us by making us more like his good and his perfect son. You will never have a clue where life is going, ever but you can always know who has secured your life so lovingly, so unsparingly, so hopefully. So go to him, go to him in this time, in this moment. That's the message, let's pray. 
God, thank you that you are the father of lights. You illuminate the darkness of our hearts. You bring light to us in our trials. You remind us of your goodness, your gifts, your unchanging character. Lord, thank you that all of these things that are stirring in our hearts and that we will walk out of this building and be prone to stirring about and trying to accomplish in our own strength. Lord, thank you that you've given us so much grace in Jesus Christ, so much mercy as we sang earlier in Jesus Christ, that if we would just fall down before you, if we would just plead for your grace in these uncertain times, if we would just remember the compassion and the kindness that comes just emanating from you. Lord, if we would just remember that, Lord, how might we practice our lives differently? How might we be more thankful, more generous, So Lord, we just pray that you would press these truths into our hearts, not because we wanna walk away from here feeling burdened that we need to do more stuff. No, all this stuff is, comes out of the doneness of Christ. It's because of the grace of Christ that we can walk away feeling encouraged rather than discouraged. We can feel convicted rather than punished. So Lord, if we are those of us who are part of this church of God family right now who are wrestling with this, Lord, would you give us, would you give us that peace this morning? Lord, for those of you who haven't yet received you and repented, received you as their savior, Lord, we pray that, Lord, you would do a work, that your mercy and grace would just come into full view for them today, that they would go before you, they would take everything all their work, all their worth, all the mistakes, all the regrets, they would lay those at your feet and they would feel your love and approval, your forgiveness come washing over them as they finally confess their sins, Lord. Would you do that work in all of us this morning, God, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand.